We have been walking alongside the people of Israel as they have begun their conquest. Next week we'll, we'll get into the first battle, but the, the people of Israel had just crossed over the Jordan. Remember last week we talked about how they set up a memorial to remember that great event in Israel's history. And now we come to chapter 5 and chapter 6. And what we have is basically a contrast. In chapter 5 we see that God is, is showing these people that they are devoted to Him. That they need to be devoted to Him. And so they are required to part, participate in these signs of circumcision and the Passover. And then in chapter 6 we see that the people of Israel are taking these things which are evil and devoting them to destruction. So we see, we see a contrast here. One, we have people who are devoted to God, and one, who, one we have people, in, the, in chapter 6, people who are devoted to destruction. And those are the people of Jericho who serve false gods and who, who basically hate God and are in opposition to Him. So, so before they can get to this battle, God slows them down and says, Listen, you need to be consecrated. You need to be set apart to me. You need to be devoted. So let's begin reading in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 1. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. And now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna. But they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, 
A man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, rather indeed, I come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place where you're standing is holy, and Joshua did so. Today we'll see that God's promise of success demands consecration or being set apart um, on the part of his people. And we'll see this broken down into two main sections. First, we'll see the purity of the people in verses 2 through 10. I'm sorry, three sections. And then we'll see the provision that God gives in verses 11 and 12. And then we'll also see the power that God demonstrates in verse 1 and 13 through 15. So let's begin with the purity that God demands. Beginning in verse 2, we find that, that there is a command by God that, that Joshua circumcised all of these men, this whole army of Israel. It says, beginning in verse 3, uh, or I'm sorry, verse 2, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. What is a flint knife? Well, flint was a, a metal that was commonly available during that time, so it, it made sense. Um, that, that Joshua would have to make several of these because he had to circumcise the entire army of Israel. And it's interesting how Joshua does not waste any time. Notice what happens there. Right after God gives the command, look at the beginning of verse 3. So Joshua made himself flint knives. He doesn't come back with an argument. He doesn't say, you know, I don't know that this would be the best way to go, God. Look back at chapter 1, and you'll see this is a pattern that Joshua has had throughout the book of Joshua. That he obeys God right after God commands him. This is the end of God's command, beginning in verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. God says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then notice verse 10. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying... So he gets right to the point. God says, get up. Be strong. Go after this battle that I'm going to give to you. And Joshua doesn't waste any time. He does it. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. The Lord is speaking to Joshua, beginning in verse 7, but we'll start in verse 8, where God says to, to Joshua... You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Verse 9, Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord. Joshua said, By this you will know that the living God is among you. And so on. And then he goes down in verse 11 and says that the Ark of the Covenant will be what goes before you. So he basically follows up on what God had just commanded to him. Not wasting any time not questioning God in any way, not thinking that there's a better way to deal with these situations. He continues to, to follow God immediately in chapter 4, in verse 15. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests who carry the ark of the testimony that they come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. It's that simple. 
It's that simple obedience that God loves, that God demands of us, that we don't stop and ask questions, that we don't stop and say, you know, I think there might be a better way. And if, if there were ever a time where a person had the right to question God, it would be right here in chapter 5. Because God is telling them to, instead of uh, continuing on with the momentum that they had, remember, God had just brought them across the Jordan River, and they got their enemies on their heels. Notice in verse 1, It came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanite who were by the sea, heard how the Lord had dried up the waters before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted. And there was no spirit in them any longer. Look at chapter 6 and verse 1. Notice what they do because of their fear. Chapter 6 verse 1 says, Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. You see how fearful these people are? They see that, that, that Israel is serving the living God. The God who is, is powerful overseas. And they recognize that God is going to be powerful over armies too. So they're, they're afraid. They don't know what this, this army is going to do. They don't know what the God of this army is going to do. So what do they do? They shut down the city. And so if we were in Joshua's shoes, God said, Hey, I want you to take all of your army and let's, let's perform surgery on them and set them back for a few days. Does that make very much sense strategically? So if there was ever a time, if there were ever a time when someone could question God and say, No, God, listen, we have nowhere to retreat to. Right? We're on the other side of the Jordan River. We can't go back now. We're vulnerable. And now we're injured. And, and so it, it doesn't make sense. But the great thing about Joshua is that he presses on despite the uncertainty of the situation despite of his lack of control of the situation and that's something that we can admire in a man like Joshua that we should obey God even when it doesn't make sense so why why perform the circumcision why does God slow these people down what is the purpose I mean because they're in such a vulnerable situation, why not just press on and continue on with what they had, had already been doing? They're about to win the battle. Why slow down? Well, there's several reasons. The first one is found in verse 4. And the, the first reason can be stated this way. All the circumcised generation, the, the older generation, they had all died in the desert. Notice in verse 4. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, they died in the wilderness along the way after they had come out of Egypt. Verse 6. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war, who came out of Egypt, they perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So the first reason that they had to circumcise these men is because the, the circumcised men of the group were, were already dead. Remember, they had disobeyed God's command. They did not follow what God wanted them to do. They, they lacked faith in God. 
And as a result of their disobedience and their lack of faith, God brought about what? Death to them. And in fact, he withheld the promise. He said, no, you're not going to receive this land flowing with milk and honey, verse 6. You're not going to receive it because you disobeyed me. I'm going to wait until I get a generation that will obey me. And then I'll give them the land. So the disobedience of the, the former generation result, resulted in death. So they were not able to receive the promise. The second reason that's stated here for why perform this, this surgery, this circumcision, is found in verse 5. And it's because, it's, it's very simple, that this current generation was uncircumcised. Look at verse 5. For all the people who came out were, un, were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way, as they came out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. Verse 7. And their children, whom he raised up, speaking of the former generation, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, because why? For they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised along the way. You think Joshua's trying to make a point here? He keeps mentioning that word over and over again. The reason that they're... They need to be circumcised is because they haven't been. It's that simple. They haven't been. And so this new generation took upon itself the responsibilities of a covenant relationship with God. And part of that relationship included this, this uh, ritual of circumcision. It was necessary for the people of Israel. So... Um, the former generation had died because they were disobedient, and this current generation now had not been circumcised along the way as they were wandering around the wilderness. So what better time to do it than right now? Another reason that's not stated explicitly, um, but is stated in other passages of Scripture, is that circumcision was a surgical sign of faith. I mean, think of how much faith a person had to have or this group of people had to have in order to perform circumcision at this time in their history. They had to basically put what they thought was best aside and allow God to, to give them their command. Allow God to be their, their commander. And in order for them to... Um, to follow God rightly, they needed to perform this ritual of circumcision. But not only was it a sign of faith, it was also a sign of commitment to the Abrahamic covenant, which apparently during the, the wilderness journey was ignored. These fathers, we would call them the unbelieving generation, who had been traveling around, although they were circumcised, they did not decide to do it to their children. They did not take time to do it to their children. We're not exactly sure why. Maybe because they were just marked by general disobedience. But the point is that they, that, that they did not perform it on their sons. And so this, this sign of circumcision was actually a commitment to the Abrahamic covenant. It looked back to what God had, had uh, decided to make a covenant between Abraham and himself. And he said, listen... You need to circumcise each male at the age of eight days old. But not only was it a sign of commitment to Abraham's covenant, it was also a sign of identification. We know from Exodus chapter 4 that the Shechemites were circumcised in order to be identified with the Israelites. 
It set Israel and all those who were circumcised apart from the rest of the world. It set them apart. And that's what God is doing here. He's saying, listen, you have come into this land flowing with milk and honey. But you know, you are different. You are not like these Canaanites who are your, you are going to destroy. And here is the one of the ways that I am going to show you that you are different. This is a sign that I want you to have. A marking on your body that shows that you are different than these evil, uh, than these evil Canaanites. But not only was it a sign of identification, it was also a sign of favor. It was a sign of favor. Look at verse 9. Because God shows that he, he does show them favor when, when they actually perform this right. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. I mean, 40 years without this rite of circumcision demonstrated God's displeasure on their father's generation. And now God says that that, that generation, the reproach that came on you because of them, all the death and the pain and the suffering that's come on you as a result of your parents is rolled away. It's gone. I've set it aside. And now God wanted this covenant of, of circumcision reinstated so that Israel would start out right in the land. And, and so it was a sign of favor. And then lastly, it was, circumcision was also a sign of purity. Is a sign of purity. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, and I'll show you that that circumcision was required before a person could take Passover, before a male could take Passover. Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12. In verse 48. It says, All the congregation of Israel... I'm sorry. uh, Verse 48. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, notice, let all his males be circumcised, and he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. Notice the requirement for Passover. That the males had to be circumcised before they could participate in this, this uh, observance of Passover. And notice back in Joshua chapter 5 what they're about to take part of. And this is the second sign of purity that God demands. Not only does he demand circumcision, but he also demands that they perform this observance of Passover. And that's found in, verses, or in verse 10. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains uh, of Jericho. Now, it seems that um, this is the first Passover since the, the, the initial one. So really only the second Passover that had ever been observed. The first one, you remember, happened right after they got out of Egypt. Okay, they were on, the, they were on uh, this side of the Red Sea. They still hadn't got into um, the wandering yet. God hadn't parted the Red Sea yet. They per- performed this, this uh, Passover. And so since then, during these 40 years, we have no record that there was another Passover having been performed. 
And this Passover was normally done on the 14th day of the month. Um, in Exodus chapter 12, I, I should have left you there, but I'll, I'll read it for you. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 3, it says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the 10th of the month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. So he gives all the qualifications and the necessities of performing this Passover. But notice in verse 3 it says, On the 10th of this month, but when we get to Joshua 5, it says on the 14th of the month. So I want, it's, it's, it's difficult to understand why would God make it on a different day? Why wouldn't he have them perform this on the 10th of the month? Um, the 10th of the month we find in Joshua 4 is actually when they crossed over the Jordan. But notice in Exodus chapter 12, verse 6. It says that when you keep these when you have these lambs, you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation is to kill it at twilight. So, although it looks like um, the tenth of the month is when you're supposed to perform this Passover, it's actually the fourteenth day of the month, which is in keeping with our passage here in Joshua chapter five. Notice Joshua Joshua five verse ten. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month. This was in keeping with God, with what God had commanded. This is no coincidence that they had come to this point on their calendar where it was time to serve and observe the Passover. This was no coincidence because God was showing them that I require purity I require consecration. I require you to be set apart from everyone else before I will give you the blessing that I have promised. And so although their fathers had not performed it as often as they should, 40 years without it, they were ready to, to take up where God required them to. And um, so the, the, the institution of these two Rites, these two rituals of circumcision and Passover show that, that these people of Israel were now really committed to what God wanted for them. But, but Joshua doesn't stop there. He shows that God does not just require purity, but he also provides for his people. And so in verses 11 and 12, we see the provision that God gives. Verse 11 says, On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Now God had provide, begun providing manna back in Exodus chapter 16. And he had continued to do it these 40 years for their fathers and for them. Even as they crossed over into Canaan, they were still receiving this manna. Because in verse 12 it says the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce. Now the day that they ate the produce was on the 15th of the month. So the manna stopped on the 16th of the month. So they had been several days into Canaan, six days into Canaan, still receiving manna from heaven. And finally, God shuts it off. Why? 
because they were able to now eat of the produce. Remember, all along, they had been promised that they would receive this great land filled with, with produce, and they, it's called the land flowing with milk and honey. The idea of overflowing with food and, and, uh, and uh, things to eat, they should not have to worry about food anymore. And so God shut off the supply of manna and showed them that, hey, this is still me, that is still I that is, is taking care of you, but I'm doing it in a different way. And this seems to um, be in keeping with the, the, uh, the festivals that normally took place after the Passover. Um, normally they would take part in uh, these festivals and eat different types of uh, barley and wheat, and this was the case for the Israelites. So what we could say here about God's provision at this point in their journey is that this is really just a down payment. This is really just to whet your appetite for what I'm about to give you because this land is full of so much more produce and exciting things that you can eat and enjoy for yourselves. But here's the beginning of it. Here's the down payment. Here's the taste of what I'm going to give you. And so, so God provides for his people. The third thing that we see is the, is the power that God demonstrates. We see that in verse 1 and verse 13 through 15. Verse 1, we already read it, that the enemies become fearful, don't they? They find out what happens and they become fearful. They're, it says that their hearts melted and there is no spirit within them. Now, it in verse 1, it says that the king of the Amorites had heard this. Now, how do they find out? Um, there's, a, there's a possibility that the king of Jericho, maybe some of the people were perched up on the walls of Jericho. Remember, there were houses built up there, so that would not be unheard of. And these walls, by the way, were 35 feet uh, on top of the, the highest part of the hill. Now, the hill was 70 feet above the Jordan River. So you're, you're, you're looking down from 105 feet. Now, the Jordan River was seven miles away, but you could probably still see what was going on. What an amazing sight, huh? To see the parting of, or not the parting, but the stopping of the Jordan River from that far away and realizing that this was not an accident. This was happening at the perfect time when the priests stepped their feet into the river. The water stopped flowing. And these kings, maybe the king of Jericho was watching this firsthand. And as a result, word spread to all the other kings of the Amorites. And he told them, listen, we're in trouble. Israel's coming. And they have a God that is so powerful that I don't think we're going to be able to stop them. And so this, the text says in verse 1 that their hearts melted and there was no spirit within them. Even as far as the verse says at the beginning that, that those all the way to the sea, the kings um, of the Canaanites who were by the sea. Which sea would this be referring to? This would be referring to the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. So all the way far, as far west as the Mediterranean, Mediterranean, these kings were finding out about Israel and about Israel's God. And they were afraid. So God is powerful. He demonstrates his power to his people, but he also demonstrates his power 
to their enemies. And and Israel should not have been, had been surprised by this because in chapter 1, verse 5, God had promised them what? That no enemy would be able to stand before you. No enemy is going to be stand up. In fact, in fact, I will demoralize them. And in the first battle that we'll look at next week, the battle of Jericho, once the walls come down, it's just chaos. And these people are in, in utter fear. And they are completely afraid of the Israelites and their God. And so their paralysis, this paralysis resulted in um, in, in immobility. The fear of the en- enemies explains why Canaan did not come over and attack. Remember, what's happening? Israel is vulnerable, right? They're all, they're all uh, waiting to heal. It takes about three to four days to heal from a circumcision. So they're pretty, in a pretty vulnerable situation. And this would be the perfect time for Canaan to come out and attack. But what do they do? Instead of attacking, they actually fortify no, we're, we're, sh- we're being shut up because we know that, that God is in control. That God is the one that's giving them the victory and we cannot fight against that. And so God shows his power to his people and to their enemies. Even though Israel was rendered immobile and ineffective in battle because of their sur- surgery, Jericho was even more so rendered immobile. Why? Not because of any surgery that had been performed on them, but why? Because of their fear. Because of their fear. And so, although the enemies were fearful, verse 1, we find in verses 13 through 15 that the captain is fearless. Look at verse 13 and we see Joshua's um, confrontation or meeting with, with, uh, with the captain of the army. Verse 13, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, rather I I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So it's interesting that Joshua has no fear to this man who is standing with a drawn sword, meaning he's ready to do battle. Joshua's not fearful of it, because in verse 13 it says that Joshua approaches him. He goes right up to him, this man who has his sword drawn, and he says... Are you for us or for our adversaries? And the officer identifies himself in verses 14 and 15. And I would suggest to you that this officer, this captain of the Lord's host, is actually an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would call this a Christophany, meaning an appearance of Jesus Christ before he was made into human flesh. This would be the pre-incarnate Christ. And the reason that I say that this is Jesus Christ is because, one, his sword was drawn. This showed a posture indicating that that he was going to give Israel the victory over Jericho and the Canaanites. So his sword was drawn. But some would say, well, this is probably just an angel. Maybe 
the angel of the Lord or, or something like that. I would suggest to you that it's not an angel because notice what happens. In verse 14 it says, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down. So Joshua worshipped him, didn't he? Now what happens when angels, angel, heavenly angels, receive worship? They reject it, right? That's happened in a couple of places in Scripture where angels have received worship and they said, no, you don't worship us, you need to worship God. We're, we're simply His servants. But in this case, this captain took uh, the worship that was given to him and he's, he accepted it. And that's why I, suggest, I am suggesting that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because our God is worthy to be worshipped and He is the only one that is worthy to be worshipped. And we, we don't have time, but the best example of, of this, this character, the angel of the Lord in Scripture, you'll see it throughout the whole te- Old Testament. Whenever the angel of the Lord is mentioned in the Old Testament, that is referring to the pre-incarnate Christ. The best example is found in Judges chapter 6. And that's the story of Gideon. And you'll see that the angel of the Lord is talking, and then... And then uh, Gideon says to him, Lord, what do you have me to do? You see what he calls him? He doesn't call him the angel of the Lord. He doesn't call him some heavenly being. He is the Lord. And even the, the text itself inter, interchanges those terms, the angel of the Lord and the Lord, and so that we can see that, that these are one and the same. So Joshua worshipped this, this um, man, and this was Jesus Christ. Um, and notice also that this captain required that Joshua um, be holy. Verse 15, The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. Does that sound familiar to you? Where else did that happen? That happened with Moses in the, at the burning bush, which was also an appearance of the Lord. Where, where when Moses stood on that ground, the burning bush said to him, which was the Lord, he said, Moses, take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is holy ground. Same thing happens here. And so this gives us that indication that this is the Lord of hosts, that this is the commander of their army. Now, we, next week when we get into what the Lord says to Joshua, we'll see that this could be this same uh, Jesus Christ talking to him, or the pre-incarnate Christ talking to him in chapter 6 and verse 2. But it's, it's really unclear because throughout the book of Joshua it says, The Lord said, the Lord said. So while it could be a continuation where this captain of the army with the drawn sword is talking to Joshua and giving him instructions, it's, it's not clear. But the point is, is that God... God shows that he is in control and that Joshua must trust in him. That, that, that God was going to be the one to give him the victory. So when we look at the story of Israel and how God demanded consecration before they would receive blessing, we may think, you know, this is a really foolish move strategically. Joshua had moved into, into enemy territory with this whole army trusting him and now he's saying, all right, guys, we're going, to be, we're going to be stopped. We're going to be slowed down for four or five days. And, in fact, we're only, even though we're only a mile and a quarter away from Jericho, 
we're going to perform this surgery. And we're going to slow you down. We're going to make you more vulnerable. But you know, God has his own way of doing things, doesn't he? And if we were the captain of this army, we would think, God doesn't understand. God doesn't know. And, and we're just going to move on. Let's just forget about what he's saying to us. Because that does not make sense. I know the best way to win this battle of Jericho. I know how to do it. I mean, we've already done it on the other side of the Jordan. When Moses was still alive, I know how to win battles. I don't need God. That would be the temptation if we were the captain. But God is not bound by strategy. He's not bound by, by intuition of men. He knows what is best, and is, He is in control of everything. And as physically dangerous as this appeared to be, it was spiritually necessary. Circumcision was necessary for Israel to get right with God. It showed that Israel was in full submission to God, that God, no matter what, even when it doesn't make sense, or in this case, even when it hurts, we are going to follow you. And we don't care what kind of consequences come. We trust you. We tend to be like the older generation of Israel, however. You know, the, the ones that died and did not receive the promise. We tend to be more impatient with God. I mean, we know what it takes to become spiritually mature. Or we know what it takes to, to gain satisfaction in this life. We know how to grow this church. We know what to do, God. And we move on ahead of what God has planned for us. And we leave Him behind. Because we know. You're not going to slow us down, God. But think of how that sounds. Now, we don't often state it that way, but that's ultimately what we're, we're doing. We, we have this promise that God has had for us, has given to us, and we say, I want to take it now. I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to allow you to slow me down. And so we tend to be impatient and we have this idea that we can go ahead and reach our goal and we don't need God. And as a result, we fudge on what God has commanded us. He's given us these commands. Yes, He's given us these promises that, that He will change us into the image of Christ. And that it, but at the same time, He also gives us a command. This is how you are ought to do it. You, are, you need to pursue God's truth. You need to get rid of sin. But we say, you know what, God? I can get to spiritual maturity on my own. I can build this church on my own. I have my own intuitions, my own strategies. And God is saying, no. Slow down and listen to me. Obey my voice. What happened when your fathers disobeyed me? Did they receive the promise that I had for them? And I think God is saying the same thing to us. We should not be surprised that we do not receive God's promises for us. His promise of success. His promise of spiritual success. I mean, we're looking to get a good thing. It's a good goal, but we're not doing it God's way. 
And so we should not be surprised when he withholds those promises from us because we have not obeyed him. Our personal growth in Jesus Christ takes time. God has promised that, yes, he will make us into the image of Christ. But it takes time. It takes effort. Our growth as a body of believers takes time. But I can tell you that it will take a lot longer if we fail to obey God completely. If we fail to consecrate ourselves, to set ourselves apart from the world. If we fail to trust Him, no matter what the outcome. If we fail to allow Him to be our guide. See, Joshua figured this out, didn't he? That God was the one in control and that I will follow Him no matter what. He had witnessed this former unbelieving generation and how they disobeyed God and how they didn't want to, they didn't want to follow God's way. They wanted what God was offering, but they didn't want to follow His way. And so Joshua figured it out. God is the one in control. God is in charge. He is the commander. And I will follow Him, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it hurts. Have you figured it out? Like Joshua. Have you seen people fail in their personal obedience? Have you seen failures within our own church? Have you seen people who have not trusted in God? And they have moved on ahead of Him, rejecting His commands for them. And as a result, have, have lived a life really of failure. We must recognize that God demands full consecration, that we be set apart to Him, that we obey Him even when it doesn't make sense. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, we're thankful that we can see Your power and Your ways in the truth and the words of Your Scripture. We pray that You'd help us to take these truths and to apply them to our lives. Sometimes, Lord, we get so busy with life that we fail to meditate on what we've learned um, when the Word of God is open to us. We move on to something else that we're thinking about. But Lord, we pray that you would allow your Spirit to, to plant these truths deep within us so that we can be changed by them. Lord, help us not to wallow in, in infancy and in spiritual immaturity and in foolishness. We, we are so prone to wander. We, we, we leave the God that we love because we think other things are more pleasurable or, or more strategically beneficial. Help us to follow you even when it doesn't make sense. You are a great God and you deserve to be praised. Help us to, to, to worship you and to serve you with all that we have. We pray it in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.